Welcome to the spoiler cast for Rehydrate. This episode will contain spoilers for all of the three-body problem, the dark forest, and death's end. If you don't want to be spoiled on future events, please skip this episode. This is Season 5, Episode 2, The Sword Holders, where we will be discussing the first half of Part 2 of Death's End by Lucy Shin. My name is Amin, and I've only read up to the current reading. Hey, this is Dan. I've read the entire series. Hey, this is Talia. I've been reading and rereading the series along with the podcast. And together with the with the spoiler cast, uh, like I mentioned on the main show, we also have an interview series where I just did an interview with the translator for some of Leah Shin's other works, uh, including The Village Teacher and Cannonball, and his name is Adam. And it is up on the feed currently, so I encourage everyone to listen to it. And Talia, I know you said you, you had retracted your statement, but I don't know if you had thoughts that you want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that Adam was a phenomenal interview. Hey, Adam, if you're listening, it's surprising people have not been knocking down your door to interview you before. I thought you were very composed and gave very considered answers because we, you know, read these translations and think Flintstones, I don't know, maybe they goofed <laughs> and you give us just a lot more nuance and depth into understanding this work and the way it interacts with its uh, the people who read it. So that was really interesting. I tried to come up with an answer for the Gok Turks, but I think you and I did the same research on inter-Asian groups, and we can't get away from that translation. So I had to retract my statement. So if any of that is usable, feel free to keep it in. Seeing as he hasn't read any of the Remembrance of First Pass series, I don't think these are you listening to the spoiler cast, but <laughs> we can pass it along now. I, I, I will add that I do think that this was one of the um, I, I, I've liked all the interview series, of course, but I thought this one was one of the ones where I learned the most just because it was coming at this from such a different perspective. So mm. even if you are, I know Adam's not listening, but for others, I would definitely, even if you've been skipping the interview series, this was definitely one you should check out. It's, it's really great. Cool. Thanks. All right. Well, let's jump into the brief summary for this episode. So we start out with the Bronze Age getting tricked into coming back and getting put on trial. Changxin is shot by Wade because he wants to be a sword holder. Gravity encounters strange phenomena in space. Changxin gets elected a sword holder, and Luoji is awesome. And an apparent droplet attack in the final 15 minutes of Changxin's reign as the sword holder ends the chapter. So Talia, I know you and I had discussed previously that you really enjoy the the Bronze Age chapter. So maybe you can kick us off and, and start talking about why you why like that, that section so much. Yeah, so it's just another example, which this novel gets more into, of the diversity in style that we see in this final, or third, if you count anything beyond three as part of the series, in this third book of The Remembrance of Earth's Past, which opened with us dropped in the middle of Constantinople, and now we're in like a court drama in which we are hearing about people thinking they're returning home as heroes. And they've, of course, been living the last lives as humanity in space for like th three decades, which humankind as of right now has never ventured to try. And they're trying to come home. And it's just like a whole nother world encapsulated in this tiny chapter. And I think it's pretty artful. Yeah, I I like that section too. I think Tim brought up a good point that, you know, he he liked it because it it you know, it's the people's mindset. You know, he likes the stories of people's mindset and when they go into space and how they change and like this is a really good uh, example of that. 
And I was thought I also personally thought it was really interesting, like how humanity is looking for maybe the revenge on them, but like they're more worried that like they don't want these people representing humanity outside, you know, because like they're worried that the Triceratops are going to destroy Earth at any time, right? So they don't want these people who they don't consider even to be human anymore to represent us uh, in the far reaches of space. The weird little mental gymnastics <laughs> that they consider them not human but then they yeah. don't want them to represent humanity. But aren't they not human? So problem solved. Well, I think they, they think they think that like, okay, so <laughs> they, the, they think that the people on the ship still think they're human and will say, hey, we're humans from the earth. But, you know, we also eat people and, you know, kill other people for resources. <laughs> so like that's, they, that's not the best foot forward for humanity probably. Uh, the, they take these you know, pretty dramatic measures to bring them back, you know, all this, this gigantic ruse to like bring all those crowds in place to say like, oh, you guys are heroes now. It's uh, no cost if the prize is human dignity. Yeah. So does, does I might've been the only one who was less impressed by this section, mostly because it just seemed to, I, I mean, it connects to the story, but it didn't seem to tied to the core plot of anything so do we come back to this at all or is this just kind of a a standalone section so we don't come back to the bronze age at all but it's more it's it's kind of setting up the i think the major thing that it's setting up well there's two things there's one is like just humanity's reaction to what happens to the people who took who might go into the far edge of the space but two is also setting up blue space which does like have a huge part in the story going forward um, so, you know, if, if you remember at the very end of the chapter, the guy from uh, Bronze Age goes and, and sends a warning to Blue Space to knock right. him back, right? That's that's the major, that's, okay. the, that's the plot thing that drives it forward. But it's just more kind of world building and like just more human psycho- uh, psychology that he's like building in there to show like what both humanity's reaction to this happening and also like what people on the ship would do. Like they were just fine. Like. Oh yeah, of course we have the people. Like, what are you? Gonna, yeah, they're there. Like, we're not just gonna throw them away. We need food. They're there. We're gonna eat them. So it's it's a interesting um, interesting twist. I also have a small bit of foreshadowing if you want to connect this to the future events of this novel. Yeah, yeah, that would be on the theme of fish, and the very final part of the interview, the trial, is the captain saying. I don't have much to say except a warning. Life reached an evolutionary milestone when it climbed onto land from the ocean, but those first fish that climbed onto land ceased to be fish. Mm. And yeah, that interaction of fish and what they do when they encounter dry land, that does actually carry on. I think the the part with the ring also talks about fish, if I remember right, too. And then, well, that's exactly yeah. what I'm thinking about. Yeah, but then there's all the all stuff with the, the fish and the gluttonous sea, right? So there's lots of... Oh, I don't think about the gluttony. I think (laughs) specifically just about the ring. The ring Mm. saying all the fish who are in this puddle will die. The fish who dried the sea are gone. Like they changed themselves. They Mm. ceased to be fish at all. And they ceased to be humanity. And that's what the captain is trying to warn them about. And of course, they just convict him of murder. (laughs) So I don't know if that will salvage this section for you, Amin. But fortunately, this is a bigger part than just this one chapter a lot more happened yeah a lot happened i mean i think like this is a 
I think this 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 section of the book that we, we kind of segmented out here, like, is a lot of like kind of there's a lot of building, you know, like place setting and getting stuff in place, like uh, getting people familiar with like what the sword holder was, what deterrence is, like how humanity and Trisolaris are at you know quote unquote peace now. It's just another example of humanity just being super arrogant <laughs> and like and naive and be like. That's it's where we're cool with the Trisolarians now. Like, we're friends. They're sharing technology. It's no problem. We're good. So, like, this is a spoiler, guys. So, that's not the last time humanity is going to have a false sense of security. Uh, and, I mean, you had a question about the meaning of Australia. And I didn't want to spoil it on the main podcast. But the it is about the country or the continent Australia and the country, too, I guess. So, you, you can imagine, you know, like, I, I think, like, it's set up pretty well that, like, something's going to happen, you know, and um, at the end of this chapter, or, you know, that, that they, they say like the droplet attacks are coming and Chengxin, uh, you know, it only has a reign of being sort of for 15 minutes, right? So we know something's coming. So what's coming is the tribes are going to attack America <laughs> or not America, the earth. They're going to attack the entire earth. And then they let them live, but they make them all, they do a forced relocation to Australia for the entire population of the earth. And it doesn't go well. But it's, it's a very interesting chapter. And so fun really changes too, <laughs> which I think is also, she turns into like this crazy military person. Pretty, It's a pretty big change for her. No more tea ceremonies. Uh, doesn't she have another one after, afterwards? I mean, during during the Great Resettlement. Right, yeah. But definitely the, the tea, way of tea is off the table <laughs> during the Great Resettlement. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, did, did that answer your question, I mean? <laughs> yeah, that, that answered the question. So I think... I'm pretty sure all that stuff happens in the next section. I know it's de- it, def- it definitely starts happening, if I remember right. Oh, just a few pages away, I believe. Yeah. Because we yeah. ended our section with the end of deterrence. Right. Yeah. So now we go into post-deterrence era, and that's the that's that, that's the Great Resettlement to Australia. But it doesn't last very long because eventually, yeah, they activate deterrence from gravity, and then the Trisolaris gets destroyed because of that, and the Trisolaris just kind of give up. Well, that's another uh, fake out because AA does say we still have gravity. And Sofon tells her that gravity has been destroyed. So for the first time, something mm. happens that Trisolaris does not seem to know about, which ends up being quite interesting. Well, they talk about the the droplets being in a Sofon free zone. So maybe they're just, yeah, they're just lying. <laughs> I think they maybe they just assume it's going to be destroyed, right? Because they set the motion and they set the, yeah, yeah, the plan exactly. in motion, right? And so like the droplets do attack. But they're able to disable the droplets. And that's another cool thing. But that... they don't know that it failed. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Rare Trisolarian arrogance, I guess. So let's let's put a mean on the spot again. How do you think that the humans can destroy the droplets? The two droplets that are there. Or disable them. Uh... There's, there's a clue in the text in, in this section. <laughs> but I think it's really almost How impossible. How could you guess this? <laughs> I know. <'Cause> <laughs> <laughs> There's like a there, you'll, you'll when you when you when, we, when you tell you you'll be like oh okay that makes sense maybe <laughs> well I have no idea so you can just tell me it's not by them turning into ghosts and like <laughs> entering the quantum realm if that's what you're thinking yeah nothing <laughs> no to do ball with ball lightning, lightning. <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so you'll remember in this section and th- this this becomes probably the most hard to wrap your head around stuff. Around the so are you sure you want to spoil it in in this section? Do you want to spoil it in this episode? Uh, because it's, it's like four hundred pages away. That's all. Is it? Is that if memory uh, serves? Don't we we start getting into? Well, I think the droplets are destroyed in the next chapter or in the next section, though. 
Because it's right. Okay. Well, yeah. So. Maybe now's a good time then. Because we definitely get into the ring. The ring is definitely the next chapter. Yeah. So maybe it is a good time. Yeah. I forget the exact order. I'll, I'll give you a brief overview. I won't spoil everything. But basically, the weird phenomena that we're seeing that the that gravity was seeing in the mm-hmm. in the in the outside the orc cloud is four is like. Actually, Tim got it. Actually, he's like, it's four-dimensional pockets nice. that just happen to kind of show up just around, right? And that's what showed up in Constantinople, too. And actually, I was worried that I spoiled it because, like, when I was talking about it on the main show, I kind of connected Constantinople to the stuff that's happening out there. And I was like, oh, damn it. Did I just give it away? But hopefully not. Hopefully it's vague enough where people aren't going <laughs> to put it together. But anyway, so like the stuff that's, ha- the weird stuff that's happening on gravity is all four dimensional um, pockets. And that's why they can kind of see through walls and they can see mm-hmm. into that girl that he's really like stalking or whatever. Um, and <laughs> the micrometeorites are happening because they're going through there. But the crew on the blue space is actually able to utilize those four dimensional pockets and they use them to destroy the trisolarian probes. Or just dis- disable them. I don't think they just need to actually destroy them, if I remember right. So how close were you? <laughs> mm, nowhere near. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think this is, and it's even when you read it, it's going to be like, what is going on? Because then they meet like beings that live within the four-dimensional stuff, and they talk in weird metaphors. And it's it's going to be difficult to, I think, to understand. It's still difficult to understand. And not to mention that, but like film. I don't know how in the world they're going to do that. <laughs> what I really like about the way that Sushin Leo talks about four-dimensional space is that he doesn't go all or nothing. Like when other science fiction authors sort of talk about other dimensions, it's sort of either, yes, you can live there and you're completely unaffected because it works for my plot for you to just walk through these different dimensions and observe quirky things. Or you can't live there and you just, if you enter there, you die. And Sushin Leo actually thinks about, well, what it would be like if something from a lower dimension entered a higher dimension, uh, what we think of as like inside our bodies and outside would be completely exposed. So yeah, you can go through and your spacesuit will still help you breathe, but a meteoroid could just as easily hit your innards as the spacesuit. It just depends like which angle it comes in at. And it's interesting if you read this for the hard science, or even if you don't, frankly. Yeah, I, 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 when I was reading it the first time, I I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember if I fully understood. Like, I definitely didn't understand during the Constantinople part that it was a four dimensional fragment that would cause her to be able to pull that guy's brain out or whatever. Um, mm. But I don't remember if I how quickly it took me or how long it took me to pick up that it was the when it was like looking into the other woman, you know, and he's like seeing like the insides of her. That if I picked up as yeah. a four dimensional fragment. Again, just weird I mean, space. Yeah, you, you reveal you, that it's very hard to imagine that <laughs> visualized on film. Totally, the like the the only time that people I've even remember attempting trying to visualize four dimensional stuff is the Tesseract and in, in Interstellar, right? Like where they're trying to do yeah. the the library. When you know, thinking back on it, like when I first saw that part, it was like seemed pretty silly, but like it's yeah, it's pretty interesting representation of how you would yeah represent four-dimensional space right it's like all possible points um are represented it's kind of interesting i guess mathematicians always like to talk about higher dimensions by first schooling you in lower dimensions and just saying all right right, just imagine going from two to three and then we'll talk about going up because it's the same principle but it's hard to think about 
Right. Yeah, I wanted to recommend Flatland a lot to the podcast, but I also don't want to spoil it by recommending Flatland. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't know if it's a spoiler to recommend it, but it's it's really, really good. Or the, the Carl Sagan video too, which I'm sure you've seen Talia. Uh, maybe I've even talked to you about it. The Yeah, the those two things. Like, And he talks about Flatland in there too. Flatland is so funny because like it is science fiction, but it also points to like the arrogance. I think it's very funny. If you're hmm. listening to this, you don't mind spoilers. So a two-dimensional creature, you know, is brought into the world of three dimensions and is amazed and learns all these new things and can see inside of what used to be the outsides of his whole universe and his whole life. And he's so excited. He talks to the three-dimensional creature about 4D and immediately, and of course, like no one in 2D believes him. They're like, yeah, there's no such thing as three dimensions. And even if there was, you couldn't reach it. And he talks to the sphere like, about four dimensions and immediately the three-dimensional object is just as arrogant he's like no i'm the highest dimension imaginable there's nothing right. above me and it just like repeats all over again yeah i i actually think we talked about flatland like in the first or an early episode of season one i think i oh yeah maybe we did yeah, uh, you yeah pretend you're just bringing it back up yeah, Unrelated yeah. So to it, anything. it's already been spoiled for people to all read right. flatland so I didn't want to like bring it back up again in this context because like, yeah, like there's so much dimensionality stuff in this book. Like we, you know, we go from uh, one dimension until until 11, I guess. And they talk about the, the mm-hmm. resetting the universe at the end of it into 11 mm-hmm. dimensions possibly. So yeah, dimensionality is like, I think it was, it was already a big part of, it's especially a three-body problem where they talk about the Sofon, right? But this yes. one is like a much, much grander scale. The next thing I want to talk about was Wade. And I mean, you had a question around, uh, maybe it was Tim, had a question if Wade is going to be a character going forward. And he is going to be a character. He's a foil for Chengxin, basically, uh, going forward. But he also kind of works with her. She's very forgiving. <laughs> she like, But she understands uh, you know, his kind of nature and his, his way to get things accomplished. And so when she she hibernates at some point and kind of gives control of our company over to Wade. And it's, it's, it's later in the book, but yeah, he definitely does, does play a, a really big part in, mm-hmm. in the, in the future of the book. So if he tried, if he did shoot her, why would she, why would she trust him? Like what, what changes to, to make well, that? Nothing ex- changes. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think it's sort of because of that. Yeah. I think she, you know, she, from the beginning, she always saw him as like the person who can just get things done no matter what the cost, I guess. Like, and that she understands that she doesn't have that, that kind of instinct. Um, and so that's why, she, and I don't know that she can, I don't know that she trusts him. I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't give a fully, I don't think there is a really good, like succinct answer, like why she does it. <laughs> well, he asks her. That's one reason. Does she he doesn't just her? decide. He's like, he, well, he tells her like, Give me your power. Give me your company. Mm. Give me everything you have. So that's right. one reason. But she, I mean, like, she could have also said no, obviously. Of course. Yeah. And <laughs> it's telling that when she tells her, you know, her CEO and her friend, AA, AA sort of immediately gets it. It's like, well, he can do this and you cannot. You don't have mm. what it takes, you know, to do this and just be such a bastard for a whole century. Yeah, but but there must be somebody else who can do that who hasn't tried killing her, I guess. <laughs> yeah. In in yeah. the in the universe. 
you would think. Some other people, like some other candidates for the sword holder, who you may have already forgotten about, they actually do come back as well. Salbine yeah. is a candidate for the sword holder. He comes back. And uh, one other is as well. Uh, I forgot the other ones. I remember Salbine does. I don't remember. There was another Salbine Chinese guy. Salbine gives Chengxin a tour of the bunker world, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah, they are of consequence to humanity in the future. Next, I wanted to talk about the the foreshadowing we saw. Like, and I thought, you know, I think myself and I mean, and everybody thought that part was interesting, where the Trisolarians kind of share our culture, uh, or you know, emulate our culture enough where they're able to uh, make it even like really artistic and, and share, you know, kind of like have cultural exchange with humanity. And the the one of the ones, the the thing I, I picked up on was there was a quote where talking about the the movie that they made and it says the pair was kept apart for the entire film. They never got to see each other, not even an imaginary scene. So that's really foreshadowing some of the events are going to happen. So, I mean, big spoiler for the book, but like Chung Shin and, and Yun Tae Ming never actually meet up again in person. Mm-hmm. Like they kind of meet up. They have like a, I don't know, they, is he like a hologram or something when he, she talks to him for a little while and then yeah, they almost sees him. Zoom, but they don't get to meet in person. Yeah, yeah. So it's like they and they just miss each other, and that that also happened earlier in the book too, oh, right? So they, yeah, it's so close. <laughs> and they, they he, she just misses him when he's just when he dies, and he just, she just misses him when he when she's on the you know and, and later in the book. So the this quote I think is very representative, and the reason I bring it up is because I, if I remember right. One of the plot points in that in the Redemption of Time, the the fan fiction follow up to this book that was not done by Liu Shishim, but apparently he was okay with it and enough where he said it was good or I don't know. Not, he didn't hate it, I guess. Anyway, so one of the plot points, if I remember right, was that all of this culture is actually coming from Yin Tianming himself. So he is maybe already in the hands of the Trisolarians, and he's generating all this this stuff, um, and and he's the one that's that's responsible for all of it. So rereading it again, it seems like that's possible. Uh, I don't know if like there's enough in the book to make that leap, but I can see it be possible, especially stuff like this. Like she, he, you know, I don't know if he knew that she missed him, but, but like, it's very artistic and, you know, given his ability to generate the fairy tales later on, like we know he's like, he has a very gifted storyteller. So I think it's possible. I think it makes it a weaker novel, to be honest. You think so? Yeah, yeah, if there's like one great man who's beaming through the stars for 300 instead of a whole civilization that's conspiring to get the best of an enemy that they're fighting for centuries. I don't yeah. know, it sort of takes the teeth away from the Trisolarans, but That's true. That that yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's it's a little bit too convenient, right? Yeah, to, right. Right. Where it's like it's kind of more interesting if like they're able to based off of these hundreds of years of, of standing off against humanity, like, fig, you know, figure us out enough to like, lull us into this false sense of security again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just put like a couple movies and some, some, uh, <laughs> some art or whatever. And then people go, Oh, they like us. They like humanity now. Uh, Tal, you had some questions or you had some, some, uh, stuff around the, the actual poem that the movie was based off of. Oh yeah. I could shed some light on the poem that, the movie they watch is based on it's this Song Dynasty poem and if you read it in classical Chinese which I believe it's probably quoted in classical Chinese in the original version you can tell that it is 
from another time. It's written in five characters per line, rhyming verse in these short, concise Chinese characters. I didn't really sense that in the English translation, but unlike, you know, Priya, I don't have a degree in English literature. But if you'll <laughs> indulge me, I will read this five line poem. So it means that I live at the base of the Yangtze River and my love for the gentle woman lives at the uh, at the head. So we live on opposite sides of this long river. And back in the Song Dynasty, that could be as impassable as all of space and time. Like you'll actually never meet just because you're separated by that distance. So do you think this could lend even more credence to that it's Yun Tian Ming? I mean, like the idea that like you live at one end of the river and I live at the other end, like that could be. Well, <laughs> as a spoiler alert, Yun Tian Ming didn't write this Song Dynasty poem. Because oh, that's it's true. Like a thousand years old. <laughs> but he might have picked it. Like, yeah, but it's been like a theme of a lot of Chinese and probably, well, not to get too deep into Chinese history on a Thursday night, but the... <laughs> late Tang Dynasty and the Song Dynasty produced tens and hundreds of thousands of poems. And right now, they're Chinese poems. But at the time that they were written, they were poetry. Mm. And you can maybe think about that. That's how large that cultural sphere was. And so to see the same story coming out, I just, I wouldn't give all that much credit to this author. I think it's mm. been pretty popular theme i did appreciate the historical references though it's definitely a very rich book yeah yeah i mean like 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 much else like the assistant probably is also a study a student of history and right you know, don't Chinese we talk culture. about like the cold war in this section and russia the russian guy yeah. frank <laughs> yeah i mean you know yeah he, he's a student of many subjects and you know i'm sure he probably maybe i'm I'm guessing that this stuff is like you know, he learned in school or something and like stuck in his mind and, you know, kind of informed his, his, uh, his writing style. Maybe in the beginning, he didn't care about characters, but he definitely in this book, I think does care about characters and like, maybe he was influenced by, yeah, this kind of poetry. So maybe it wasn't Yuan Tian Ming, right. You know, uh, copying this, you know, or citing this, this, this verse, right. But it was Liu Shishin kind of for, making that a foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on in the, in the story. In Australia and beyond. Uh, and speaking of foreshadowing, I found another quote that I thought was full of foreshadowing, which was, uh, the beautiful world revealed its fragility to Changshin, like a lovely soap bubble floating through a bramble bush. A single touch was enough to destroy everything. So soap bubbles become very big, big idea and big, uh, big concept in the, the fairy tales. So I'm I am beyond excited to get to the fairy tale chapter. Uh, I'm I'm interested to see what uh, what, what other people, non will people, think about that chapter because I mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm just totally into it. What is the fairy tale chapter? You don't have to spoil the whole thing for me, but just I think it'd be almost impossible for to to, to spoil it. But basically, Yun Tae Ming's like coded uh, warning and information dump to Chung Shin. Uh, when the, like we talked about, they kind of talk over like this comlink or whatever. Like it's not a person, but it's like they talk to each other. It's like wrapped in like this super metaphorical fairy tale, and 
the the greatest thing about it is that like human like the book kind of focuses on humanity trying to decipher this this fairy tale and uh and, and trying to figure out like what Yun Ting Ming is trying to tell us via it and like how we can save ourselves. Because mm-hmm. like yeah, uh, it's 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 he's I would not do it justice. Yeah, you would not. <laughs> no one ever could, but he's not allowed to give her strategic intelligence, is I think crucial to understanding. So right. he tells her this seemingly innocuous story, and that's the storytell chapter. I see. Yeah, he he says in the beginning, like, oh, I remember we used to tell the fairy tale to each other. We used to make them up when we were kids, even though they didn't know each other when they were kids, but the Tristellers don't know that. Um, and he says, well, we'll just, you know, we, since we can't really talk about anything strategic, we'll just talk about that. We'll just talk. We'll just talk about these fairy tales. And so it's like super wrapped into like all these like this met this yeah these metaphors and and this dual was a dual and triple layer metaphors <laughs> uh, and there's like bearing coordinates and uh, it's 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 like a science it's a sci-fi interpretation of how to um how to read fa- the metaphors <laughs> I guess it's a it, yeah, I, I couldn't give it, couldn't do it justice by talking about it, but it's like three whole chapters in the book, and it's great. I will say this chapter that we just read is so full of a lot of other things. I think you could almost miss that it has like another dark forest level secret hidden in in just this chapter, and it's another reason this is one of my favorite segments of the book. It's this Guan Yifen, the cosmologist who's aboard Gravity and observing the universe around him. If you remember, he says that he is saying like the known universe is 16 billion light years across and it's this three and 3,000 problem. The speed of light is comparatively really slow. It's like 300,000 kilometers per second. So light Mm -hmm. can never go from one end of the 16 billion light year size of the universe to the other. So nothing can really communicate with the other side of the universe. If this were a person, he would have paraplegia. And this whole idea of the universe as a corpse or damaged in this really crucial way is as big a reveal about the nature of the universe as I believe like the dark forest was. In a very superficial kind of uh, observation, I didn't remember uh, Guan Yifan having like this giant beard and like they talk about him being really scraggly and like uh like disheveled you know and i was like that's not how i fixed him at all i don't know why i pick, didn't pick it up because like you know he's the one that shows up later and like i was I feel like you know. men in space are probably just like men at sea like they probably <laughs> all have beards <laughs> right. gonna be bothered to shave i feel i think all the the the, the current era men probably do right because they're all all feminized and stuff so well i hope they change it in the in the movie yeah, actually, speaking of that, did you have any thoughts around um, like what Leo Shishin is trying to say here by saying humanity like that has become a lot more feminized and yeah, you know, and like it's hard to tell apart like the males and females now. Uh, do you have any thoughts there of like what what he's trying to represent? I had two theories on this. One was that you know the author is commenting on the current state of the world when when he was writing this. So. I don't know when he was writing this, 2010-ish, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. Um, But then the other thing was, I was thinking evolutionarily, do do the differences between the genders become less pronounced over time? So um, the men become more, quote, feminine, and the women become, quote, more masculine. Although 
he didn't talk about the other half of things, but um, so and, and he doesn't he doesn't actually talk about this. That was just one of the things I was wondering evolutionarily if that's something that could happen in you know hundreds or thousands of years if humans are still around then. Yeah, I mean, it could just be you know just the nature of politics and the acceptance of of that kind of stuff too. Because like already like you know from ten years ago even from where we were ten years ago like you know there's a lot more acceptance of you know like just not straight binary male and female people and so like this more now it's like more accepted that there's a spectrum right of of gender and so maybe like extrapolating that into the future like you know hmm. the humanity just like eventually evolves into the place where it's like everyone they, they understand like whatever people want to be and everyone kind of just like shifts over to the more feminine side of things i'm not sure that that's what he's going after yeah i mean I mean, is definitely right that he's commenting on the world around him because Chung Sheen, I think, explicitly talks about Asian pop bands yeah. like from her own time. And I was like, oh, he means K-pop. Right, like, right. <laughs> the fact that they were eyeliner. But maybe he's, I don't know if he's successful at this, but hes it seems that he's trying to draw an association between the fashion trends that we think of as like, oh, they're coincidental. They come from art and art is always changing. Actually, no, like the 1920s and 30s, where we start to see short hair in men. Well, a lot of men went off to war and had to cut their hair. And maybe they came back and a lot of people started having short hair. And no kind of conflict or any battle or fear has been happening. And so maybe in its absence, he's trying to say, you know, masculinity is not serving a big purpose anymore. Again, I don't know if he was totally successful, but it seemed to me that that's what he was trying to say. But then we contrast that with like the the common era men who are there and like they're like the, the getting stuff done guys, right? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. The, they're relics yeah, right. from a past age. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the yeah, just the differences in like op- opinions on on their attractiveness, right? Because Chung seems to be uh, attracted to, or yeah, at least thinks that the common era men are more attractive and. AA does not seem to be <laughs> things are like just like Neanderthals, right? <laughs> I think Victorian men wore dresses that might not be super attractive to yeah, definitely twenty twenty one. Right, yeah, people, yeah, some guy walking down the road like you know powdered face and a and a wig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, <laughs> and weren't high heels originally worn by men to help them when they were riding horses? Exactly. Were they? I didn't know that. Yeah, they're like riding shoes. They weren't stilettos, but they were like a raised heel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And please join us next episode for season five, episode three, Australia, the second half of part two of Death's End by Lucy Shin.